This talk was recorded by Insight Meditation South Bay in Mountain View, California. For more talks and information, visit www.imsb.org. I want to propose a, a, a vision of karma that is not much out there. It's a, it's a pretty different vision. Uh, it's a personal vision. One of the things that I always liked about uh, the Buddhist path is that there was no request that you believe anything or accept any metaphysical proposition that you can't test with your own experience. You know, so you don't get into the God is blue, God is red, God is blue, God is red kind of stuff. And then somebody else say, no, God is green. But you can't test any of that with your own experience. One of the things that happens with karma, well, let me, let me start with, with just the word itself. Karma, many of you know, translates as, as action. And, but, but it's used often to refer to the payoff. Right? This is my karma. Oh, I've got, you know. So it, it gets muddied up right away in what it's really talking about. The standard model of karma is, uh, is you've got karma, which is the action, and vipaka, which is the word for the fruit of the action. So the karma vipaka model is the standard model, and it, predates, it predated, predates, predated the Buddha. Uh, it was a Brahmin notion. And actually the word uh, karma uh, comes, comes to us from the, from the, the Sanskrit word karman, which referred to the, the performance of Brahmanic ritual, Brahminic ritual. Because at the time of the Buddha, the Brahmins were the priests of the society and they kept everything, they kept the cosmos going because they would make certain uh, sacrifices and perform rituals that would make the gods happy. And if the gods were happy, then everything went swimmingly. And so there were lots of, I mean, things were very heavily ritualized. And if you wanted your cows to be fertile, you wanted a, a son or a daughter, or you wanted whatever, there were rituals you were getting married. And it was, karman was the word that described the correct performance. Karman was when, when the performance came off and you got what you wanted. There was the payoff. There was, a, there was a lot of specialization among the, among the people specialized in what mantras were to be pronounced, the pitch, the length, the duration, what words were to be spoken. It was a very uh, sophisticated system. But the, the focus was always on the payoff, that what, what's going to come back to you from external. So you, you want rain, and uh, you do the rain ritual, and you get rain. And that, that's the good result. One of the things that's happened is that we now translate that into you know, karma as a payoff for moral behavior. Isn't that how it gets? You know, if you, if you're, what goes around comes around, and uh, as you reap, you sow, and those kinds of notions of karma. Focusing on what comes back to you. Often, it requ- in order to, to buy that, you have to buy some kind of metaphysical proposition. I mean, things like there's a reason for everything. I mean, I don't know. Um, there's probably a gazillion. You can make up two gazillion reasons for everything. And it requires the adoption of some, you know, metaphysical mechanism that we really don't know, and we just buy it, you know. 
What goes around comes around. And then you get into, you get into issues of does everything, is everything that we experience the result of our past action? You know, I've heard monastics claim that if you were standing on the beach in Sri Lanka when the tsunami hit, that was your karma. It's because of what you, know, what you did sometime before. Many of you know my wife is, is, uh, is ill and has been for some years, and she gets a lot of correspondence from people. And people, want, people write, and they want to know what they did wrong in their past life, that they're sick now. You know, so there's, there's a lot of this. I, re- I regard that as myself as magical thinking. So a lot of people find consolation in it. You know, people find consolation because there's, you know, we have an impulse, a desire for fairness and justice. You know, so is Ken Lay get his just rewards somehow? You know, I mean, he died just before he was indicted. You know, the the chairman of Enron. You know, did he get away with it all, or, you know, well, no, because he's going to come back as a cockroach in a cave in South America. You know. Or something like that. You know. We want their, We want this justice. Well, the Buddha, this was not the Buddha's notion, but it's hard to tease out because the culture at the time was so embedded in it, and and there's an impulse in us to want to explain things and account for things, and so, you know, we we project things onto a metaphysical tableau and then believe that you know God is blue or. I like God as blue myself. This was not the Buddha's vision. And what he did in, in the case of, of karma is that he, he, what he did often with other things, he flipped the meaning. He said, karma is intention. It's not whether you actually you know, perform the ritual correctly. It's intention. He says, intention, I tell you, is kama. Intending, one does kama by way of body, speech, and intellect. And what's really amazing about that is that it all becomes internal. It's very different. The notion that everything might be caused by karma, is, the Buddha addressed this in a, one of the suttas in the um, Samyutta Nikaya. I'll read a little bit of it. And the Buddha, the Buddha actually had a, had a sense of humor. So, you know, in this case, the wanderer approaches the Blessed One and, and says to him, Master Gautama, there are some ascetics and Brahmins who hold such a doctrine and view as this. Whatever a person experiences, whether it be pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant, all that is caused by what was done in the past. What does Master Gautama say about this? So the Buddha says, Some feeling, Sivaka, arise here originating from bile. Some feelings arise here originating from bile one can know for oneself. And that is considered to be true in the world. Now when those ascetics and Brahmins hold such a doctrine and view as this, Whatever a person experiences, whether it be pleasant or painful, or neither pleasant nor painful, you know, all that is caused by what was done in the past, then they overshoot what one knows by oneself. 
and they overshoot what is considered to be true in the world. Therefore, I say that this is wrong on the part of those ascetics. Some feelings, Sivaka, arise here originating from phlegm. Then the rest of the text. Some originating from wind. So you get a sense of where he's going. You know, the, and some from an imbalance of all three. Phlegm, bile, wind. Some feelings arise produced by change of climate. Some by careless behavior. Some are caused by assault. And some are produced as the result of karma. That some feelings arise here produced as the result of karma, as intention, one can know for oneself. And that is considered to be true in the world. But when those ascetics and Brahmins hold such a doctrine and view as this, whatever a person experiences, whether it be pleasant or painful or neither pleasant or painful, all that is caused by what was done in the past, then they overshoot what one knows for oneself and they overshoot what is considered to be true in the world. Therefore, I say that this is wrong on the part of those ascetics. This changes, this changes the whole ballgame because what we're talking about is intention. We're right in the middle of the Eightfold Path. Right intention, speech, and action. As he says... This is in the Anguttara Nikaya in the Book of Sixes, if you want to look it up. I, intention is comma, intending one does comma by way of body, speech, and intellect. So it's a real different perspective. It's not so much, it doesn't matter in a way what you do, what's important for your freedom and for the end of dukkha is the intention. We're in the realm of, of right intention. So we're not talking about payoff from the cosmos, from the external world. We're not talking about good things happening to you or bad things happening to you. And we don't need to resort to metaphysical stuff to explain how, you know, if we're, gonna, if we're going to have karma pay off in some future life, if Ken Lay is going to get his, You've got, to, you've got to make up some story about rebirth. And people believe rebirth. You don't need to in order to understand karma the way I think the Buddha presented it. It's not a matter of what happens to you. It's not a matter of your fate. It's a matter of who you turn yourself into. The Buddha says, this is in uh, Anjama 19, he says, bhikkhus, whatever a bhikkhu, or monks, whatever a monk, frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of his mind. If he frequently thinks and ponders upon thoughts of sensual desire, he has abandoned the thought of renunciation to cultivate the thought of sensual desire. And then his mind inclines to thoughts of sensual desire. If he frequently thinks upon, thinks and ponders ponders upon thoughts of ill will okay, or upon thoughts of cruelty. These are the three unskillful intentions. Sensual desire, ill will, and cruelty. We don't think of ourselves as cruel. But I, I think he's talking about that impulse in us to either threaten or exact 
some painful experience in another in exchange for them do, you know, doing what we want. If you don't get the car back by 10 o'clock on Friday night, you won't drive for a month. It's the stick part of the carrot and the stick. And so he's saying, you know, we're talking about mental habits. We're talking about intentional habits. This is our karma. I, you know, for me, it works. It makes sense. I spent my my career in public life and the news was a huge part I had in my office. CNN was on always, along with monitors of legislative hearings. And, you know, even while I was, had my computer up, I had the T, and I, you know, I became accustomed to more news than anybody needs. And I still feel, I haven't, you know, I've been working in 10 years and I still feel uneasy if I don't know that the Alawites are the people who are moving out of Syria right now as opposed to, you know, I mean, who needs that, you know? <laughs> but I'm sure you guys have, have habits of mind, habits of behavior, and this is what the Buddha is talking about. We don't need to build, make karma into some transcendent force some impersonal force that replaces some supernatural thing that we fled from at an earlier time. I mean, sometimes things, sometimes things just happen. Even with, with the best of intention, a surgeon can lose a patient on the table. The best of intention and the best of skill, and that won't preserve him from the anger, perhaps, of the family. You know, we're not, it's not, but he won't feel remorse. If you do your best, your intention is clean, you won't feel remorse. It's what the Buddha called the bliss of blamelessness. It also, also looking at it this way, avoids that whole notion of, uh, you know, if there's nobody home, anatta, you know, no self. If there's nobody home, who gets reincarnated? You know, there's, well, you know, that's what people, that's, people ask that every time you get into the, into the realms of multiple births. And, you know, multiple births don't necessarily sit real well with those of us who are cultured in an empirically, empirically based culture. Karma, in this sense, is not a state. It's, uh, it's just habits. There was, on 60 Minutes, oh, some months ago, maybe some of you saw it, there was, a, there was a, just a fabulous story about half a dozen people that were identified by this uh, psychologist, I guess, at UC Irvine. They have the ability to recall everything they've ever done. And it's, it, it's just amazing. They would ask them, what did you have for lunch on March 14, 1982? And they'd go, well, I had the salmon salad, and I was eating with my girlfriend, and I won't tell you what we talked about. They had some guy who was talking about a football game. When was Roger Staubach a quarterback? In the 70s? 70s? So he, he, he recounted some incident, and he was sitting you know, in a studio talking in a chair to the interviewer, and he was describing this scene on TV, and they put the clip up, and he was describing it. It was just like he was being a commentator in the moment. One of these people is a, a woman named Louise Owens, and she's a violin, violinist in New York, and um, she was asked whether this was a, a blessing or a curse, this ability. What she said was pretty interesting. She said, because 
none of the none of the, this group, I think there were seven or eight, none of them had partners. They all had some slight obsessive qualities. You know, and so you could see, but she said that it was a blessing because she knew that everything she did, she was going to remember. Everything. And so as a result, she made sure that she didn't do anything that would cause her later to look back with regret and remorse. So the bliss of blamelessness is the bliss of you know, not, no regret, no remorse. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the kinds of dispositional attitudes that we might bring to our experience, what kind of habits we bring. Because, you know, the habits we bring, what we bring to an experience actually creates the experience we encounter. There's a great little Indian aphorism that I, that I particularly like in, in my group in Davis. Almost every week it shows up because it, it just seems... And it's when a pickpocket meets a saint, he only sees the saint's pockets. Because you, you look for what your, you know, your intention guides your attention. We create the realities we experience with our intention. So it, it would be worth a little bit of thought to, to consider the kinds of dispositions, the kinds of habits that we bring to our experience. Because this is, this is a matter of, of behavior. We karma. It's not, it might actually be a verb. You know, there are a lot of these terms that we think of as nouns that are really verbs. Nibbana is a verb. It's something we do. Samsara is a verb too. They're not nouns. Nibbana is not some fog or some state. It's not like being drunk or enlightened. It's something we do. It's a verb. And karma is a verb. And what we do is we bring habitual tendencies to our behavior. And we're on automatic pilot a lot of the time. David Eagleman, who's a neuroscientist at Baylor University, and I figure if you can be a neuroscientist at Baylor, I'll, I'll, I'll credit to you. But he's a, he's a neuroscientist, and he's, uh, he's written a book called Incognito, which if you're curious about how Western science might embrace Anatta, there's no better introduction. It's an easy read. And I've seen him. He looks like he, he stalks around like a rock star. And, you know. But he says most of what's going on in us is going on under the hood, is his metaphor. It's going on under the hood. It's reflexive. It's repetitive. It's habitual. The stuff that rises to consciousness, not so much. We don't consciously even know what we do when we drive our car. We think we do, but he has us do, he had us do this little experiment. Try this yourself. Put your hands on, as if you're on a wheel and you're driving along and you're going to turn into the right, to the, one lane to the, to the right. So do with the steering wheel what you would do in order to turn and get into the right lane. Most people will go like this. Right? That will run you right off the road. Really? And people do this because we don't really know what we're doing. It's on automatic pilot. You, have, you turn over, you have to go back because you turn right. You've got to turn back left. But it's on automatic pilot. And so are the dispositions that we bring to every moment of our experience. 
And the deepest ones are things we don't even, you know, we can't access directly. Sort of like the goings on down there in the amygdala. They show up for us, but we, we can't access them directly. It's what the Buddha called the asavas, translated as the taints or the cankers or filaments. And there are three or four of them, depending on where in the, in the canon you come across them. They aren't, like I say, they're, they're not visible. They're underlying tendencies. So one of them, for example, is the desire, is the tendency to want more experience, more life. It shows up as survival instinct. Might not be activated right now. This is pretty comfortable and nice, but boy, you know, if somebody came in dressed like Batman, we'd, there would be reaction, you know, and it would manifest. So the, the, that's, that's one of them, the, 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 the tendency to want more experience, novelty, more. And so we go, we go looking for that, like the pickpocket. And it, it brings an intention to our experience, which leads us to think about the future. I want to be reborn as the owner of a Porsche Cayenne hybrid. Oh, no, that's... <laughs> But it could work that way, you know? Whatever it is you want to become. You know, it's, it matches the tanha, bhava tanha, which is the, the desire to become. Also, kama asava, or kama tanha, which is, which is the desire for pleasant experience. We spend our time trying to make things pleasant. We don't get up in the morning and say, what don't I want to eat? I'm going for that. You know, we want, we're looking to make things pleasant, right? I mean, we shift our position to be more comfortable. We don't intentionally stick ourselves with things. I mean, if we did, you know, our ancestors, if we inherited that tendency from our ancestors, they probably wouldn't have survived long enough. You know, you want, there's this survival instinct, desire that that survival be pleasant, and the third one is, and, and that colors, that, that's a, an intention that comes along. It's, it shows up in the hindrances, is one of the hindrances. We bring that to our experience, and we cultivate those, those habits. The third one's pretty interesting. The third one of the, the asavas is uh, avijja asava, which is ignorance. And ignorance is kind of a, a clunky word because it's got a real pejorative aura to it. It's the same word that's referred to, it's the same meaning as what's referred to as delusion. And it generally means just, you know, ignorance of, of dukkha, a full understanding of dukkha. Uh, but there's, there's also a verb aspect to this. It's something we do. It's not this cloud of dazed stupor that we're ignorant it's something we do, and it's something we do intentionally so that we don't have to deal with the way things are. This impermanent stuff, it's okay if you've got a headache. You can say, oh, okay, if it's impermanent, that's good. This too will pass. When things are going good, uh-uh. How about the big impermanence? We just don't even want to deal with that. And so we do everything we can to distract ourselves. We go to movies. You know, we entertain ourselves. And, and, you know, 
maybe there was some evolutionary benefit to our forebears who you know wouldn't sit in existential angst while you know facing the you know the reality of things it helps us stay strive, strive buddha said all things are impermanent strive on with diligence his last words uh, he was this was not a message of consolation it was a message of courage and then there's the dithyasava which is the tendency to cling to views or opinions and we, we ha- that's a tendency, it's a habit. In the Sutta Napada, the Buddha says, people who cling to views generally go around annoying other people. That's why, actually, they're called asavas, because asavas translates as uh, effluent. So we're leaking our views, etc., all over the world. And I gather that the translation of Naroda, which is the third noble truth, means to stop the leaking. So the tendency to cling to views. We are looking for something. We really do want to look for something stable. We want an understanding that is stable, that we can rely on, depend on. Don't we? You know, We want that ultimate truth, even though ultimate truth is a conventional designation. That's what we want. And we bring that to our experience. That's our karma. It's also our karma because it's what we're going to manifest again. These are habits that we have, that we have cultivated. Well, those habits are built in. There's some that we've cultivated too. Some of the ones that, the, some of the things that the Buddha mentions in, uh, you know, he's got in the Abhidhamma, he's got a list of 52 mental factors. Some of those things, you just look at the list and you, you can imagine what is it like when you bring envy to the table? when you've got a habit of being envious. Remember, this is not about how people are going to re- react to you. See, sometimes your intention will get a response, you know, particularly if you express it verbally, as in, you jerk. <laughs> you know, somebody might you know, respond to that. But it's who you turn yourself into. And so we want to pay attention to that. Because we notice ourselves doing that, stinginess. One of my teachers, John Peacock, was, tells a story, and he swears it's true. He overheard a neighbor, and I guess in, in uh, Britain where he lives, they have backyards that you know right next to each other, and the fences are chest high. And he heard a neighbor two or three yards down saying to another neighbor, I couldn't possibly lend you that. I don't use it myself. <laughs> It's just a, you know, a who, what would, W-W-L-O-D, what would Louise Owen do? Conceit. This is a habit. It's also a, so a reflex. It's, it's a fetter. It's the tendency to reflexively think in terms of yourself. It's not personality view. It's not who you think you are. It's just, I am. Bhikkhu Bodhi says we spend all our time seeking pleasant experience, trying to avoid unpleasant experience, and figuring out how all this is relating to me. And what's our, what's our subjective experience of all this stuff? These, the ones that I've just been going over. Dukkha. How pleasant is it to be envious or angry, ill will? When we bring those to the table out of habit, when we react to public figures, 
I'm sure you guys have, you know, programmed responses when, well, you pick the person who gets on your nerves the most out there on the media, you know. And it happens the same way every time, you know. What if that, what if that lovely person was having a good time? Oh, horrible. So let's take a look at a different uh, realm of intention. Let's take a look at the intention that comes with the practice of the precepts. Because the intention there is an intention to restrain certain kinds of behavior. So instead of lobha, which is greed, alobha. That doesn't mean that the impulse to greed doesn't come up, but we just leave it alone. We don't express it. We don't act it out. So it's a pr- because we've, we've resolved for the purposes of training not to take what's not freely given. So we just don't respond. We don't respond you know, with false speech. Ill will, we don't respond by striking at or taking life or causing harm because we've resolved to pay attention to that and to figure out, really, the precepts are not about rules either. They're about intention. In fact, it doesn't matter what you do. It matters about what your intention, and the precept is just a flag about where, you know, pay attention here, this is heavy-duty stuff. I mean, there's situations you can imagine where telling a lie fluently would be right speech. When the Nazis knock on the door and say, is Anne Frank here? You want to be totally convincing and totally intentional, and you want to lie, I think. If you adhere to a fundamentalist, got to tell the truth, then I've got to finesse this question, they'll catch you. So, you know. So the, the precepts are about intentions. They're re- the intention to restrain the kinds of impulses that get us into trouble. So it's, a, it's a, an intention of renunciation. And then there's sort of the last, the last realm, which is how about the, the intentions that are based in the Brahma-viharas, you know, that are based in friendliness, in joy, in compassion, and equanimity? If those are the habits that you've cultivated, and those are what you've turned yourself into, not bad, congratulations. <laughs> you know, uh, it's, it's what's to be cultivated. Karma, we cultivate our karma, we cultivate who we turn ourselves into, not whether we get a parking place. So karma, you know, you've heard, good parking karma, yeah, it's out there. (laughs) Brahminic ritual, alive and well. Anybody ever say what you have to do to get good parking karma? It just happens, right? Yeah, it's, it's one of those magical things. It's the guardian angel, the guardian deva. Is looking after us. So working with karma is a skill, and it's a skill of crafting intention. Its intention is the second element on the Eightfold Path, where instead of greed, it's not just not greed, aloba, it's dana or chaga, it's generosity and giving. You know, it's not just Adosa, not just no ill will. When the ill will shows up, we just abandon it. We let it go. We don't take it up. It's actual metta, friendliness, and compassion instead of cruelty. And underlying it all is equanimity, which is not a state. 
These Brahma-viharas are not states, they're activities, they're things we do. Equanimity is the, is the process of engaging fully with our experience without resisting or clinging, which sounds a lot like nirvana. So karma is a practice. It has to do with who we turn ourselves into. And we are the heirs to our karma, as the Buddha said. We are the heirs to our karma, what we, what we routinely, frequently, what, what someone frequently thinks and ponders upon becomes the inclination. So we should take a look at just what we're bringing to our, to our experience, because the question is, how do we want to live? How are we going to experience this precious life that is temporary? And the trick is to learn how to do it without dukkha. And I think that attending to karma is a way to help us do that. I'd like to just suggest that to you as a, as a perspective on, uh, on that.